Alrighty, good morning everyone. Welcome and thank you for coming to PEF 03, Chronic Pain Assessment. Our faculty today is Dr. Michael Clark. Please join me in giving him a warm welcome. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, this is me. Um, although I could tell you that I'm not really Michael Clark, I just like to go to meetings and impersonate other lectures. Um, how many people have been to Pain Week before? A good chunk of you. Um, how many people have been to this lecture before? One or two. Okay. Um, thanks for coming back. Um, and how many of you are actively taking care of patients with chronic pain? So almost everybody. Um, great. Um, well, I will be giving a couple of lectures today. Um, this is a lecture that I think of as more foundational in the sense that, um, as I was taught many years ago, uh, you can't really provide good treatment or even a good diagnosis if you haven't done a decent history and physical. Uh, and so that really is the overwhelming message here today um, in this session. Take the time to do a good assessment. Um, it's easy in a world where we're pressured by so many different forces to be more efficient and to cut corners and to limit ourselves in some way, uh, the thing that always gets cut out is time with the patient uh, because we have to bill and we have to document and we have to follow this thing and we have to fill out that form and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but really, if you do take the time to get the information through whatever means, and when we'll talk about some of the different ways, um, and to get to know that patient over time, uh, you will be much more successful in tailoring their treatment and knowing what it is that you're treating and how this person differs from others in your practice. You know that this is a huge problem. Uh, you hear about this in the news now almost on a daily basis because of the opioid epidemic and the consequences of using opioids and, and their abuse and all of the other problems that arise from that. Uh, but it is true that pain is a significant problem, and it will continue to be. And for all of the less thoughtful approaches to trying to limit our practice and the way in which we can care for these patients, um, they're not going away. And we are going to have to be able to take care of them, and we're going to have to be able to take care of them in more sophisticated ways in order to explain what it is that we're doing to all of the people that would try to impact our care who know very little about patient care. <clears throat> it's also true that what we're doing now is not as effective as we would like it to be. And you know that your field is in some trouble when you talk about a 50% improvement in pain as being the gold standard for a clinical trial or a significant outcome. And if you were taking care of any other illness, you would not be satisfied with 50% improvement or 50% control. Um, so think about the ways in which you can push yourself and push the care of your patients to the next level. Um, these are patients that are suffering 
to a huge extent. Their function is severely impaired. Their quality of life is probably the lowest of any patient in the healthcare system because they are living for long periods of time. They are seeking high levels of care. They're having poor outcomes from that care. And as a result, they just meander through um, and they become increasingly disabled. Um, there is not a good sense of what is the appropriate way in which to take care of these patients. You hear about guidelines, but if we were to pull up management strategies for diabetes or hypertension or congestive heart failure, there would be very specific information and very specific stages at which you would use other medicines or switch your care or involve other types of therapy. And yet, just the definition of multidisciplinary pain management can mean any number of things. And the best data for interdisciplinary rehabilitation programs is ignored by third-party payers who have essentially driven those programs out of business or into less effective settings or limited the ability of them to take care of some of the sickest and most disabled high-utilizing patients. So you are left to try to create those in virtual ways or to try and manage or do much of that care yourself or within your own community, and, and that's a challenge for sure. It's in part a challenge because many of us didn't really get any education in this area. Uh, we didn't get a lot of help uh, about what are the conditions, what are the treatments, what are the behaviors that these patients engage in, uh, how is it that we see suffering, disability, pain itself manifest in the way people live their lives and approach their health care. And, and you all know that there are patients out there that are very different from one another. You have some patients that you are convinced are manipulating you or over-dramatizing their complaints for various reasons. You have other patients that you think of as amazingly resilient in the face of unbelievable disease burden. And yet, what determines who is following what path through our system? And how do you manage them differently? Because they require very different management approaches. <clears throat> Even the definition that you see up here is not terribly helpful. Um, you, you kind of know it when you see it. But the truth of the matter is that if someone comes to you for a complaint like pain or fatigue or insomnia, no matter the healthcare setting, the odds are that one year later, 50% of those patients will be complaining of that symptom. And so there is something unique about and defining about coming to see a healthcare practitioner because you have this problem. Many of these people don't come to healthcare attention, they just kind of manage and live their life. Maybe for the better, maybe not. But if they do come and see you, there's something about them that will almost make them chronic by definition. So these are patients that you're going to see. These are patients that are not going to go away. These are patients that are getting higher in number in your practice. 
And so you have to think about how am I going to approach these people? How am I going to manage what will become decades worth of health care um, and still be effective with them? You can see that if you were just to list some of the things that are linked with chronic pain, important to its management, affect outcome, the, the list is huge. And that's just a partial list. And right away you should be thinking, how am I supposed to get all of this information? Well, obviously not all at once, because that's impossible in today's healthcare system. But you can get more of it than you think in more easy fashion than you might think, and you will accumulate it over time. Because, again, they're going to be there, and you're going to be taking care of them. And so, again, what I would emphasize to you is think of them more like every other patient that you're going to see as opposed to different, in the sense that you are taught in your training to take a history, to collect various sources of information, to cover different areas besides just the chief complaint and the history of present illness, and then to do an examination that will hopefully confirm what you're thinking or rule out things that you're worried about and ultimately direct your formulation and the treatment plan. It's the same thing with these patients. There's a lot more going on. There's a lot of complexities. There's oftentimes a long history, but it's the same process, and you can do that. The thing that's a little bit different is that we don't have the objectivity that we would like in this domain, either in terms of our examinations or getting patients to tests of various kinds, or even in the way they talk about their symptoms. And so it requires a fair bit of art and experience to interview a patient with chronic pain and to get them to describe the experience and to look at the tests that they've had rather than just take them at face value. Because everybody will tell you after a long period of time, oh yeah, that was abnormal, when in fact maybe it was equivocal. Or maybe it was positive, but in a way that you and I would say is lab variation or insignificant at a clinical level. But yet, if you don't take the time to ferret some of that out, pretty soon you're taking somebody who's got some vague symptoms and you've diagnosed them with multiple sclerosis or lupus or any other number of conditions. Um, so the upfront work does pay off in, in your confidence of what it is that you're actually managing. The, the major outcome that you're going to pursue is functionality. And so, yes, it's, it's nice if the patient's symptoms go away. If, if somebody really is pain-free, um, that's an interesting experience, and it's a fun experience. But as anybody who is over about the age of 40 knows, you don't wake up and live pain-free in your life. And yet, any of you who are sitting here right now who have any kind of physical complaint intermittently or chronically 
have somehow managed to get to this conference, get to this lecture, make it through the week, and return home in a way that stands out as pretty functional compared to some of the patients we're talking about. And that's what we're hoping for these patients is how can we get them to look more like us? How can we get them to wake up in the morning and even though they feel crummy, like maybe I did this morning, still get out of bed, still come down, still give their lecture, still make it through the day, and at the end of the day say, you know, that was a pretty decent day, which will make it easier for me to get up tomorrow when I don't feel so great. So that's the aspect of function. That the psychological assessment is important too, not so much because you don't want to miss a major psychiatric disorder, and, and these patients do have them in spades, particularly major depression, but also just in their sense of an approach to living and that sense of what we describe as resilience. And how can we get them to be thinking more about the fact that they're going to be a functional, contributing member of society as opposed to a disabled, sick patient who needs to be taken care of. Less focus on comfort and palliative measures and more interest in living and satisfying and experiencing. Be simply because you are going to do a lot of this, a large portion of pain management just boils down to medication use. Um, I don't think we're going to change that in any near term. We might change the types of medicines we prescribe or the way in which we prescribe them, but let's face it, you're going to be giving medications. And it is going to be important to know what medications a patient has taken and what kind of effect they've had and what kind of side effects have emerged. And someday, probably not in my lifetime, but someday hopefully we'll be able to do genomic testing or some other kind of testing and say, this is the medicine that's going to help you, and this medicine won't. But until then, it's just organizing the data. It's just getting the data. And you can't just accept at face value the patient who says, yeah, I failed everything. Or, oh, yeah, I took Cymbalta and it didn't work for me. Well, how long did you take it? What kind of doses were prescribed? What other medicines were you on when you were taking it? It takes time to do that. But it's helpful to see the patterns emerge in terms of what is it that the person has actually taken for any period of time in a semi-therapeutic dose. And you'll find that most patients have not taken as many things as they think they have. Because in order to have truly therapeutic trials of many medicines, it takes months to do that. And so really, there's an infinite number of treatments and medications that patients could be on when you think about the combinations and the, and the way in which to address their compliance. So we are left with talking about what do you experience? They, they are the gold standard of report. Um, there is no test, there is no rating scale, there is no standardized questionnaire that will do all of this for you. You have to do it. You have to be the expert. 
Um, you can observe people and, and how they're acting. And I knew one primary care doctor who put up a, uh, a camera in his parking lot so that he could watch his patients come and go. And he was fascinated by how different their functionality was in the parking lot compared to the office. Now, I, I don't know that you have to go that far, but it, you should be curious about these people and, and what it is that they're doing and able to do and how it is that they communicate that to you. <clears throat> it's probably even more critical to have some source of collateral information whether it's a family member, whether it's the records, whether it's primary source records, um, it's important to get another perspective. Um, and that can be illuminating. And obviously in this patient population, physiologic measures really don't offer much to us. And, or if, if there is a physiologic measure that stands out in some way, you have missed something. And for example, if you are looking at the physiologic measure of a hematocrit that is drifting down from 38 to 22 over a period of years for somebody who has chronic abdominal pain, you should probably work that up in some way. Because the person that didn't work that up for one of my patients missed the esophageal cancer that by the time he got to our program had become metastatic and he was dead three months later all because, well, he was a young guy with chronic abdominal pain and, you know, why, why work anything up? What could they possibly find? Well, every once in a while you find something like that. Now, some people like mnemonics, and I put this up here just in case you are one of those people. I, I love mnemonics because I think they're funny, and I can never remember all of the things that the letters stand for. So, I remember the mnemonic, but not what it's supposed to teach me. Um, the best way to remember this process is to just know it so well that it's automatic. So that when you sit down to take a history or to interview a patient or to see somebody in follow-up, you just know what you're doing. Um, but this can help you get going and this can make you uh, remember things not to leave out. And so, you know, everybody should have a hamster, I guess. Um, I don't know why anybody picked hamster. Um, same thing with L-Doxera. Uh, this is more specific to the HPI. In, in part, I show you this because I think the history of present illness is the thing that people struggle the most with. It's easy to sit back and say, what are your medical problems? What are your allergies? What are your medicines? Have you had any surgeries? What did your parents suffer from? What your siblings had as far as health care problems? How far did you go in school? What do you work? Are you married? Do you have any kids? Okay, there you go. But then you say, okay, let's talk about what's going on and why you're here. And suddenly it's like, ugh, well, you have pain for 20 years, I guess that's it. No, that's not the history of present illness. And so you really would like to know where are the symptoms and how long have they been going on and how did they start? What, what do you remember about that first time? What kind of character, you've got to be able to describe it to me more than just it hurts. And I can maybe help you with that, but I'd like to hear from you more detail. How severe is it? What's your goal for this? Um, elimination or reduction or just changing character? What makes it worse? What makes it better? And what else is going on? 
And when you ask people about this stuff, you hear some interesting stories and people tell you things about what it is that's going on and how it is the, how they then define the context of their experience. Now, of course, we're all supposed to rate pain and regulations keep us doing this. And if anybody here has ever actually been in pain and been asked to rate it, you'll acknowledge, I hope, that it's not easy. And here's just a blank line where you can try to self-graduate and mark where it is from nothing to worst possible. Um, this was designed originally to be used in research studies because it's a 100 millimeter line, and so people would just measure over 71 millimeters, and that would go in the database for statistical analyses. Um, people recognize that probably the average person in clinical care needs a little bit more help and, and anchoring, so they start adding words and hash marks and numbers and faces. And the whole idea here is, you know, your kind of frowny face is different from mine. And somebody's eight is another man's two. And you'll see people that have horrible conditions, and you think, ugh. And they'll say, oh, yeah, my pain's about a three. And you'll see somebody else who's sitting there like any of you telling you their pain is a 12. And so what's the point? The, the point is this helps you with the conversation. Like all of these tools, they facilitate communication. Really? It, you're in a 12? How, how can that be? How is it that you're even able to stand here and talk to me? Um, so it facilitates the exam and, and the relationship because you're interacting with somebody in a way that is a little bit more standardized and reassuring and the patient feels as if appropriate information is being asked. As you think about the psychological side of this, <clears throat> remember the most common psychiatric disorder in this patient population is major depression. It's missed, underdiagnosed, attributed to secondary characteristics, not given treatments that are specific to major depression, what we think of as the, the neurobiological disease process. And if they are given treatment, they aren't pushed to therapeutic dosing and they don't stay on the treatment long enough and the symptoms don't go into remission. And that is a large driver of chronic pain and poor outcome and the failure of other treatments. The most common psychological complaint in medicine is anxiety, and it's most commonly a manifestation of major depression. If people are telling you that they are truly suicidal, they are hopeless, they are thinking about ending their life, they see that as a realistic option for how to deal with the suffering they're experiencing, that is a major depression until proven otherwise. But it is not normal for patients with chronic pain to say that or think those kinds of things. And it's clearly a different phenomenon than the person who says, if you don't give me my opioids, I'm going to kill myself. All right? So look for other histories of trauma. Look for histories of addiction. Be aware of the cognitive impairment that patients on multiple medications can develop. 
that is subtle and more likely to cause problems with compliance than anything else. Remember that there are a ton of screening questionnaires. And you have to think about your practice and your patient population as to what am I going to use and what's feasible to use. Because they take time and energy, and sometimes they require staff, and sometimes they require scoring. And for the most part, they're not diagnostic instruments. They're other sources of information, or they facilitate the collection of information. <clears throat> How many of you know about the PHQ-9? All right. How many of you have heard of the PHQ-8? Do you know what the difference is? One question. That's good. <laughs> You're a sharp audience, you know. I, it's gratifying. Um, the one question that's not on the PHQ-8 is, are you suicidal? Why, why would you drop that question, which I've just told you is pretty serious because you don't know what to do if it's positive okay so do we really need that eh, probably not <laughs> all right now the PHQ 8 or 9 for any test that you're doing there's something called a positive predictive value and a negative predictive value the positive predictive value is if you score positively on the test what's the probability that you actually have that condition that you're screening for? And the negative predictive value is just the opposite. If you don't screen positive, what's the probability that you don't have that? And you would like both of them to be 100%, right? Because you want to have confidence in this test. You want it to help you. But in fact, the, those two numbers for the PHQ-9 are about 35%. So think about if you had a mammogram that a radiologist said was negative and normal, and that was only, he was only 35% right. Or if you had a mammogram that was read as positive and abnormal, that he was only 35% right. How many of you would be getting mammograms? Probably not many. You certainly wouldn't stand for that test to be used over and over without some kind of refinement or an alternative being developed. But that's the situation we're in. Many healthcare systems incorporate this into their electronic medical record as their mental health screen and say, we're multidisciplinary. We take psychiatry seriously. Not helpful for this population. All right. You hear people talk a lot about catastrophizing. And it's got a definition, too. Um, you know it when you see it. You know the patients that are dramatic and fall apart and call you at the drop of a hat and tend to be overly concerned about whatever it is is going on with them. Um, of course, there's a screening tool for that. It's correlated with a lot of poor outcomes. And what it does for practitioners is it makes you not want to see that patient, right? That's the truth. Because what's happening with the catastrophizer is the signal-to-noise ratio is so degraded that it's impossible to figure out what's going on with them. And so you just think, I, I, there's probably nothing going on with them, and I don't want to suffer with that anymore. So you kind of say, I don't want to see them. 
But in fact, there's a lot of data to show that catastrophizing actually responds to treatment. And yes, the treatments can be highly structured CBT sessions over many months by a professional, but the truth of the matter is you get almost the same effect size or response to treatment with just spending time with the patient and educating them about what is truly wrong with them and asking them to look for and find other sources of social support. The relationship matters to them, the information does get in there, and it will make your experience with them, and, and them by the way, these people are not calm, happy people, better. So it's worth working with them. Kinesiophobia is a, is a term that really has to do with how people who are in pain tend to avoid doing anything that will aggravate that pain. And just when you're supposed to be up and moving around and doing things to help facilitate recovering from an injury or a symptom or remain functional in the face of it, these are the people that are thinking, oh, it's making me worse, or I'm going to injure myself more, or I can't do that because it hurts, and I should not do anything until I don't hurt at all. And so they wind up in this kind of behavioral cycle of increasing disability and, and decreasing function. So these are the people that need more hands-on reassurance, sooner involvement with physical therapy and other techniques where people are directing them through it and reassuring them and helping them get over that fear and avoidance so that they then pick up speed and return to function. This is more like skill management and behavioral desensitization than anything else. And then you see people that you think of as this label. Um, and it's, it's meant to address the group of patients who are not necessarily addicts or have a substance use disorder because those individuals are pursuing drug effect. They are, they are taking a substance for some particular reason. And, and these are the people that are taking medicines because they think they're sick, because they think if they don't take the medicines they'll be worse, because they tend to take a medicine hoping to alleviate some stress or to kind of calm down or feel a little bit different, but they're not quite in the same category. And so they tend to be on a lot of stuff. They tend to have other problems like depression and other uh, life stressors that they're not managing very well. And <clears throat> they have bad outcome. And they have a bad outcome largely because the important part of this label is coping. These are people that don't have good coping skills. And the medicines become their coping strategy. And so these are people that need, again, a different kind of education and a different kind of hands-on management from you to think about ways in which they can cope differently and more effectively. <clears throat> now, you know that there are patients with chronic pain or people who are taking opioids or other substances with abuse potential who go on to develop that problem. It's, it's inevitable. The, the question that we still can't answer very well is what percentage and who's at most risk 
beyond the obvious, which is if you had a substance abuse problem in the past, you're at much greater risk of developing a substance abuse in the future. But let's say you don't have that history, which is actually the majority of us, and you've made it to midlife or older life without that problem, and yet somebody gives you one of these medications. How, how likely is it that you will go on to abuse it and develop a true addiction? We don't really know. We have a lot of estimates. And the estimates range from like zero to 100%. So it's probably, like many things, a third. But which third? And you're never going to be able to predict it. Healthcare professionals are not good at prediction. They're good at management, and they're good at paying attention to things and being curious about it, and you will get to know who is having the problem or who the problem is evident in, and then you'll be able to intervene. But you have to talk to patients. And again, it's not the screening tool that's the magic. It's knowing how to ask these questions in a way that the person will answer and that then you can interpret the response. Yeah, people get annoyed when I, when I drink. In what way? Why do they get annoyed? Well, because they're, you know, they're <clears throat> very religious, don't think anybody in society should drink alcohol, and, uh, you know, they're my best friend. As opposed to, well, because every time I drink, I tend to get argumentative, and I make a scene, and embarrass my wife, and, you know, that causes problems. Two very different answers or at least the content of the answers. <clears throat> um, there are other standardized questionnaires. You can find a, a million of them. Um, one that is actually relatively brief and easy to use and easy to look at is the brief pain inventory, which is in the common domain. Um, has a lot of Likert scales and a lot of simple answers to questions about your pain and how it responds to treatment and what it, it affects. And the Perhaps the reason to have some of these is because you can see progress over time. Or you can see relapse. And you can track areas of concentration or problem that you need to pay attention to. You heard me mention earlier about the sources of collateral information. Um, when it comes to testing of various kinds, that's additional information. That's collateral information. The problem is that we don't have a good diagnostic test for any kind of chronic pain disorder. There are tests that are helpful in defining the etiology of particular types of pain or ruling out particular types of, of pain syndromes. But really, the tests that you order should be based on your history and your physical and the course of the patient and what you think maybe they really have that you could rule in or something that you're really terribly worried about missing and you want to rule out. Because remember, statistically, the more tests you do, if you do 11 tests, one of them will be abnormal, just by the odds. And once you get one of those abnormal tests in the middle of a huge battery, you've got to figure out, what does it mean? And is it just statistical anomaly, or is it meaningful to my patient. And the more workup you do, the more likely the workup is to be invasive and risky. 
and less meaningful, if not damaging. So ultimately what you're trying to develop is a long-term plan of care for this patient and thinking about how am I going to get closer and closer to the target of effective management and better outcome and good function for them. And so you should have some kind of working diagnosis in your head where you think about what's the cause of the patient's symptoms, what you think their symptoms crystallize around in terms of a syndrome, and what kind of pathophysiology is in play that you're going to try to reduce, change, get rid of. You, you don't have to be right, by the way. And this will change over time as you get more information. But you should at least have in your head the rationale and be able to explain to somebody what it is you're doing and why you're doing it. That's what this provides you. And then with your initial treatment, you're hoping that it's going to be individualized based on this working diagnosis and that you're going to pursue it in a rational way. You're going to take some time getting there. You're going to try to ensure the patient's able to take the treatment and stick with the treatment and be compliant and that you're going to look for changes that have incremental benefit to the patient or explain side effects or noncompliance and that you're going to be able to detect problems. When it comes to, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of information in this week's schedule about abuse, diversion, addiction, opioids, overdose death, the use of illicit opioids. Um, I'll just say a few words here about, again, there's lots of screening tools. Some are filled out by you as you ask the questions, and others are filled out by the patient. They all ask the same information, information that you should be eliciting, whether it's through a questionnaire or just through your interactions with the patient, to try to assess how worried am I about this patient, and what do I know about them that will make me worried or less worried, and recognizing that we really don't know and can't predict who's going to get into trouble. And when I was younger and I interviewed anybody over the age of 65, if I asked about marijuana use or any illicit drug use, they'd just kind of laugh at you because nobody did that much. On the other hand, now that the baby boomers are over 65 and the use of recreational drugs is much more widespread and accepted and even legal in some places, you get all kinds of crazy answers about, you know, people who are 80 years old telling you they've done cocaine and maybe still do it. Um, and so <clears throat> you got to be asking people. And if you look at the data from large companies like Millennial or any of Millennium or any of those other companies, Quest, that do toxicology screens, based on what the person is prescribed and the outcome of that test, two-thirds are abnormal, either because the drug that's prescribed is not there or a substance that's not prescribed is present. So very few people are actually doing what we tell them to do, which is a sad commentary on us, but we're trying. Um, as you look for and learn about aberrant drug-taking behaviors, you'll find that there are some behaviors that are obviously just egregious and scream addiction. 
And those aren't really the problem, because if you find out most of these things about your patient, you're thinking to yourself, hey, I got a huge problem, and I got to deal with it. But then there are the, the gray zone, which is where most of life lives, right? In between the extremes. And so you're left trying to figure out, well, why are they requesting a specific drug? Is it because they abuse it, and they like it, and they want it? And I'm not going to give it to them no matter what? Or is it because they've actually are fairly cognizant of their health care and what they've been given in the past, and perhaps they are missing an enzyme or they have a particular receptor formulation that makes that drug work best for them? And they're just telling you the honest truth. You have to sort through all of that. So it really boils down to reassessing people, following up with them, seeing what's happened, being curious about what's going on and what your treatments have done or not been able to do. Um, to think about, are you approaching a goal with them or are you just treading water? If you can sit down with a patient and say, how is this patient doing? And say, pretty well, actually then probably whatever it is you're doing for them is working. But if you sit down and you say, how's this patient doing? And you think to yourself, eh, I wouldn't trade places with them. I don't think they have a very good life. They're not really doing that much. They still have quite a few symptoms. Then you should be asking yourself, what can I do differently? Or what should I change? Or how can I get this person better? And thinking about ways in which to do that. Um, oftentimes you've missed something. You've missed a psychological problem or psychiatric disorder. You've, you've skipped over a treatment that maybe would be more effective. And so think about what is it that I'm not paying attention to? What is it that my, I'm missing for this patient? Do the physical exam again. See if it's different. See if there's a new finding. See if something is improved that will help you reformulate the case. And again, this aspect of follow-up really comes down to how have their symptoms improved, what side effects are they having, what's their function, and are they doing anything that they shouldn't be doing? Not just abusing medicine, but if they're not doing their physical therapy or they're not following a routine for their daily schedule, <coughs> all of that can be a problem. <coughs> So you really do want to try and individualize their treatment. You'll get much further and much better outcomes. You want to be thinking about all of the comorbidities uh, that people in this space experience, and they are numerous. But you also want to try and take the simplest approach because these are patients where, over time, they tend to accumulate treatments, and they turn into onions. And now you have layer upon layer of stuff, and you can't quite figure out their current presentation, how much of it is due to their original problem, or all of the other things that you've added and have caused more problems. And so a lot of their management requires a periodic pruning back of, let's try to get rid of stuff that really didn't make a difference or might be causing problems. When do you get help? Well. In any number of situations where you think, 
I'm not really sure what the diagnosis is. Uh, I think maybe the patient would benefit from something I don't know how to do or, or can't get them to. I have not been able to reach the goal of, of our therapy. I'm uncomfortable now with the amount of opioid or other medicines they're on. Uh, I'm worried that something uh, is kindling here. Oh, look, there actually is evidence for misuse or abuse. Or I just can't think of what to do next. And there are plenty of times when I will call up a friend of mine or I will say, you know, can I tell you about a case and these are the things I've tried. What would you do? And they say, oh, well, I would think to do this, that, or the other thing. And you think, oh, that, that was helpful. I'd kind of forgotten about those or I'd kind of overlooked them. You can't do this alone. It is helpful and interesting and supportive just for your own health um, to have people that you share the burden with. So adopt that personalized and incremental approach to management as well as assessment. Think about the tools that will actually help you, not just burden you. Uh, do have goals for uh, the treatment that you're providing. Uh, think about ways in which to combine multiple modes of treatment that are rational. And while it's good to have help and other people consulting, it's not good to not be in charge of the patient's care. Um, because then it fragments and they fall through the cracks and all kinds of crazy stuff gets done to them and told to them. So they need somebody that is managing the overall case. And, and that admittedly is the most fun because you get to see what's going on and you get to see them get better. So I'll stop there. I appreciate your attention. Thanks very much for coming. <laughs>